Hi, I'm Tom Maxidon. We appreciate your financial support of this Word podcast, which has been running since February 2019. We focus primarily on literature in Arizona and the region, though sometimes we do break the mold of what is traditionally thought of as such, with discussions about biography, screenwriting, and essays. This has proven to be popular and thought-provoking, as portions of this podcast have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Association Awards. Thanks to everyone who became a sustaining member of KJZZ during a recent fund drive in August. If you've not yet become one, please think about making a gift of support at whatever level fits your budget. Your financial contribution helps to reliably fund the news, information, and entertainment that you appreciate at KJZZ. Just go to kjzz.org and click on the Donate tab on the left side of your screen. And now, on with Season 6 of Word. Word, I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Welcome to the Season 6 opener of Word. We hope you enjoyed your summer as we return for another series of literature conversations on a wide array of topics. In this first episode, we run the gamut from self-help to personal history. That holiday came about because of the death of George Floyd. Just very simply stated. Plus a romantic comedy based in Phoenix that deals with the opioid crisis. If you want your stories to have substance, you have to hurt your character. And that's actually been a real struggle for me. And a horror-western hybrid film shot during the pandemic in Arizona. Particularly in westerns, you don't really see female characters portrayed that aren't, you know, like saloon girls. But first, we're breaking the mold a bit with our first guest, given the events in Afghanistan and our proximity to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Sean Bonzoff is Assistant Director of Student Success at the Pat Tillman Veterans Center at Arizona State University. This spring, he and co-author Jamin Hubner released The Five L's, a practical guide for helping loved ones heal after trauma. We'll touch on some highlights from the book, which is a nonfiction work, he began a recent conversation talking about his role at ASU. That role for me is really about helping student veterans transition from their military careers and that world-class organization into the world-class organization at ASU. And uh, that takes something because going from one culture to another is certainly something that takes a lot of hard work, but it also takes an understanding. And I've went through that already, so I'm able to kind of share my experience and and help other student veterans do that. Kind of like a life coach, if you will, Tom, I, I do try to help them understand that. The name of the book is The Five L's, A Practical Guide for Helping Loved Ones Heal After Trauma. Mm -hmm. And you describe it as kind of a common sense guide to dealing with things like post-traumatic stress. And even particularly for those who might be a spouse, a partner, or a friend of a veteran, and, and just the veterans themselves. And that led to the title, The Five L's. I wonder if you could just describe what The Five L's are. Absolutely, Tom. Thank you for asking. And it is a practical guide because uh, so often people want to help people who have walked through trauma. They're not uh, trained psychologists. They're not trained counselors, but they, they, they want to do something to help. 
And, uh, you know, I came up with these five things because my wife did these things for me after I came home from Iraq, struggling with my own post-traumatic stress. Working with student veterans, I needed to have something that I could give to everybody working at ASU and give to the people that, that mean a lot to me. So I came up with these five things. And I really believe if you'll do these five things, you can help anybody who's walked through trauma. It gives you a starting point. And so I describe them as first to love. If you choose to love someone, that's the best starting point that you can have. And I think that's just a good way to live life. And if you do choose to love me, you'll listen. And I describe this listening as aerobic listening in the book, using your whole body to listen. If you love me, you listen to me, you're going to learn where my trauma comes from. After you've learned where it's come from, you're going to do what you can to lessen further trauma. To the person that you love, you know, maybe it's uh, they struggle with driving like I do sometimes. My wife steps in and says, hey, let me drive. All my trauma in the army and in combat came in, you know, in a vehicle. So sometimes on the roads, it, it distracts me. So the final thing is to lead. And uh, so often PTSD and trauma puts people in the dark. Uh, right. But I learned in my time in the military, the greatest leaders bring order to chaos and PTSD is chaos. So if you love me, help lead me out of the dark and into the light. So yeah, and that's kind of a brief overview of the book. The other thing that I thought was interesting as well is that obviously post-traumatic stress does not just affect veterans. No. It could be for people who might be a survivor of cancer, for instance, a victim of sexual assault or an abusive relationship in general. This book has mm. wide applications, it seems. It really does. And that's what I'm really hoping, Tom, to be honest with you, is to make sure that people understand that trauma is fairly normal. If you if you look out across the landscape of your life, there's many people in your life that uh, have suffered some sort of trauma. And often they'll come to you because you're a trusted person. And sometimes you feel like you don't know what to do. These five L's, they can give you at least a baseline to help the people that you love. And that's why I wrote it for the veterans, for the caregivers, but for everybody. A lot has obviously changed since the book was published. It came out in April and is doing very well. You're in the Guard, is that right? The Army National Guard? I was in the Army National Guard, yes, right. 21 years. And a Bronze Star recipient with the Army National Guard who saw combat yes, in 2006 and 2007 in Iraq. What are your feelings about the current unfolding of events in Afghanistan as there's honestly a lot of finger pointing that's reported in the media, including from our parent network, NPR? I've basically been told, you know, uh, speaking about this topic as an employee of ASU and the Pat Tillman Veterans Center, I'm to shy away from these questions, Tom, but if I can speak to you as a private citizen and a veteran, I can tell you that here's the deal. Veterans have this thing we call moral authority because we have stepped out into sometimes the abyss where it is normal to make a video of yourself saying goodbye to your wife and your children before you go outside the wire in case you don't come back. And so people want to hear from us. And I understand that. I can tell you just personally how I feel is uh, there is frustration and sadness. And I know a lot of veterans feel the same way. Um, you know, you were called to do a job, you did your job, and now you're home, or maybe you you have buddies that didn't come home. So there's just great frustration, Tom. I don't know how else to put it, and great sadness. So that's about as deep and as far as I can go here. 
I appreciate that, and I appreciate the position that you are in as the new Assistant Director of Student Services at the Pat Tillman Veterans Center at Arizona State University. Sean Bonsoff is the co-author of The Five L's, A Practical Guide for Helping Loved Ones Heal After Trauma, and Jamin Hubner is the co-author. Sean, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking about post-traumatic stress and the book and just your own personal feelings. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate your time. You can find out a bit more about Sean Bonsoff and the five L's on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can use your smartphone to get the perfect mix of BBC, NPR, and KJZZ News with the KJZZ mobile app. Download the app, tap the menu on the left, and get all the features. Listen live every day. Get it at your favorite app store. Did you know two out of every three NPR listeners prefer to purchase products and services from public radio sponsors? You can see the benefits of becoming a KJZZ corporate sponsor at sponsor.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Chloe Hammonds is a scholar, writer, artist, and activist who's had a busy summer. She's also the creative director of Emancipation Arts in Phoenix, an organization which seeks to raise the profile of black artists in Arizona. One of her summer projects has been compiling the anthology Indiscernibles in partnership with the Piper Center for Creative Writing at ASU. Recently, I caught up with her to talk about that in addition to other projects she's working on this fall. I also have a course that's in conjunction with the Great Migration Project that will be a virtual, interactive virtual course through Phoenix Center for the Arts. So, yeah, I've been busy. (laughs) And this is Arts for a Change, right? Yes, and it's three hours on a Saturday. It's in three volumes. It's aimed at teachers and homeschool educators that just don't really have good preparation for teaching any kind of Black history at all. But this is focused on the history of Blacks in Arizona. Well, I wanted to ask you about the photo that's on the Facebook page for Emancipation Arts. And this is a photo with a a gentleman, and there's palm trees in the back, and then there's a crowd on either side and behind him. And he has a prominent sign that says, Arizona Awake. Can you tell Mm -hmm. me about that photo, who, who that person is, and when that photo was taken? I can't tell you exactly who he is, but it was a photo in the civil rights era in Phoenix where people were protesting for public accommodations. The 60s is not ancient history, but there were restaurants and stores and and so forth that just simply did not serve Black people. Fast forward to now in the era that we are, A lot of folks would say, oh, things are so much better. We have a federal holiday now with Juneteenth. What was your reaction to that? What were you thinking? Well, firstly, if we put things in context, that holiday came about because of the death of George Floyd. Just very simply stated, many of the reckonings that are coming to pass are because of that man's murder, public execution. And so when we look at Juneteenth, there are going to be opportunists in everything. 
And even though people don't genuinely know why it's significant, we're also saying we're celebrating emancipation when all of the black folks in the country weren't free. The five civilized tribes still had enslaved black people after Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So I think we need to uh, do a better job of educating and putting truth out, which is why I sort of strive to do what I do. I'm constantly expanding the context of my great migration story. It's not in our history books and the Native people don't acknowledge it. As recently as the COVID pandemic, Cherokee health institutions were denying freedmen vaccinations. It's got to be frustrating for all your advocacy. You know, many things are frustrating. So I, I try to balance it with people that are genuinely pursuing some kind of equity. You know, when I when I meet people like you, I realize that uh, everything that we're talking about is going to go further. Well, that's very kind of you to say, and I'm really looking forward to this Indiscernibles anthology. And I like this story that you told me about your idea for putting it together, because first of all, this developed as an art exhibition, and now it's working into literature. And, you know, I consider literature an art form, but you were telling me that you actually would stop people on the streets, right, in the in the arts court oh, yes. in Phoenix and, and say, hey, take this, uh, what was it, you had index cards or postcards, right? I had postcards made because I, I, you know, realized that not everybody's on social media. And I basically do outreach wherever I can. And so the point about this, though, was to really collect people's personal stories as to what it means to be here in this region, right? Exactly right. And if you watch stories on television and movies and so forth, we really don't see Blacks in the West or specifically in Arizona. And we are pretty stigmatized. You know, (laughs) when I lived in the Bay Area, people would say, well, where are you from? And I'd say, I'm from Arizona. I'm from Phoenix. And they're like, what? There's Blacks in Phoenix? I would say, well, there was one. This Indiscernibles anthology, you collaborated with the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing at ASU. How instrumental were they in helping you to get the word out to get people to make submissions? And and by the way, what types of submissions did you get? Everything from sort of personal essays to creative stories? Everything had a personal significance. They were creatively written, but I can't call them creative stories. And going back to Virginia Piper, I've got to tell you that Jake Friedman is my hero because this would not have gone as well as it did without him investing his time and his energy and his heart into the project. But the overall project has always been multidisciplinary because I work in a number of mediums. I I have a very difficult time not seeing things in sort of an expansive manner. So we do music, we do literature, we do the Emancipation Marathon, we do visual and collect oral histories even. And the story continues. And what do you see in your immediate horizon? It's not like I'm trying to rush you into something else, but uh, (laughs) what are you thinking about for maybe the rest of this year? 
I have a project going on called the Birthright Project. And because we don't normally see race-based trauma get any kind of treatment, and there is plenty of it happening here. And so I have a project called the Birthright Project to put musical instruments into the hands of Black folks and it's a path to not just physical wellness, but an emotional kind of stability. So I will be working with Valle del Sol on that project. Oh, wow. I'm very happy to say. I think we know the evidence. You don't have to look too deeply to understand that art heals and certainly music can heal. And I wish you the best of luck on that project and all the other things that you've been undertaking. Cloti Hammonds is creative director for Emancipation Arts in Phoenix. Cloti, it's been so nice to meet you over the course of this last year, and thank you so much for talking to us on Word. All right. Thank you, Tom. You can find out a bit more information about Cloti Hammonds and her work on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. You have lots of interests, and KJZZ has lots of programs. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Noel King. I'm Peter O'Dowd. This is Here and Now. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. If you're looking for the perfect mix of news and stories, then stay connected to KJZZ on 91.5 and KJZZ.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Jen McKinley has been living in Arizona for three decades and is a New York Times, USA Today, and Publishers Weekly best-selling author of several mystery and romance series. I had a chance to talk with her about storytelling, characterization, and the plot of her past work and latest novel, Wait For It. It's a rom-com set in the state, and I was curious how she became a transplant to Arizona like so many of us. I had come from Connecticut. Uh, I just wanted to live in the desert at the time. The cost of living out here was kind of perfect for an aspiring writer. I uh, could work a part-time job and and then write and write and write. And it took a while, but, you know, finally sold some books and now it's a full-time gig. How long did it take you to make this your permanent vocation, as it were? And had you always wanted to do this for a living? I kind of decided at 16 that I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't write anything until I was 25, which is about when I moved here. And I think I sold my first book when I, I think I had just turned 31. So it was like six years of, you know, submitting, rejecting, submitting, rejecting. I have a nice, like uh, one inch file folder full of rejections that I keep, <laughs> you know, keep me humble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, in, in some ways it's kind of like being a salesperson. You don't stop at the first no or the second no or the oh. third or the 15th, oh. right? You keep on trying. No. Yeah, you got it. What is it? The guy who wrote something like uh, the next no leads to yes. I remember reading all those self-help things <laughs> back in the day just to keep motivated. I was like, oh, the next one will be a yes. I'm sure of it. You know, it, it's persistence. I mean, um, there's a million writers out there who have really brilliant stories, but they quit. So sadly, we never get their stories. And sometimes it's just market forces, right? I mean, obviously, you're selling to readers and readers' tastes change with the times, right? And things 
double back. So if you're writing, you know, science fiction and then it's in a down spiral, keep going because in three or four years, it's going to be back. <laughs> That's like we always joke, you know, are vampires back yet? We're, nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the adage? Everything old is new again, right? So. Exactly. Well, it's like the 80s are back. I'm like, oh, man, really? We had really big hair back That's then. That's just what I, I was going to say. A good idea. I can do without the hair. <laughs> And I think exactly. mullets were starting to come in in the late 80s as well. So I can do and they're back. Those mullets and they're back. are back. This is what I've heard. <laughs> well, your new book has lots of laughs. Uh, it's called Wait For It, and it is set here in Arizona. Is this the first book that you've used your home state? It's the first one that I've used Phoenix in. I also write mysteries. So I have a um, mystery series set in Old Town Scottsdale. One of the things that continues to be in the news is the nation's opioid crisis. And, of course, Arizona has been very affected by that as well. And that's the topic in this book, which is a romantic comedy. How do you weave Mm -hmm. something that disastrous into a rom-com? It's tough. I mean, I think if you want your stories to have substance, you have to hurt your characters. And that's actually been a real struggle for me. That's not my gift because I'm fond of them. I care about them, you know. So uh, it's. The romantic comedies actually have made me grow as a writer uh, more than the the mysteries. My mysteries are traditional. They're very um, uh, Agatha Christie. You know, when people say, what do you write? I would say I am a Agatha Christie. I love Lucy mashup. So you're not going super deep on your characters uh, other than they're solving a murder, which is pretty intense. But their their backstories are generally regular people. There's not a lot of pain. But when you get into rom-coms, you know, you've got to write 100,000 words sustained on emotion. You know, with a mystery, you've got a dead body. That moves the plot along. So... <laughs> right. And this is a pretty <laughs> hefty work. I mean, at well over 300 pages, right? Um... Yeah, it's just, I go, I go, long, I play the long game in the rom com. So with the opiate crisis, I was a librarian in downtown Phoenix for about 20 years, part time, which was what allowed me to be a writer you know, surrounded by books and and just inspired every day, but also working with the public. And I just met so many kids whose lives had really been gutted by the opiate crisis. I think, wow, a lot of them had to really build their lives from the ground up because of what had happened to their parents and their families. It was, it's a bad one. It's, you know, so yeah, I used it and I kind of feel bad about that, but any writer will tell you everything is material. (laughs) So don't tell me any secrets or they're going in. Tell me then about the the main characters in in this and some of their motivations. This book was never on my radar. I wrote a book called Paris is Always a Good Idea. That was my first run at uh, rom-coms. And the main character, Chelsea, had a sister, Annabelle. And I really just wrote her as a foil for the uptight Chelsea. You know, she was a workaholic. She kind of had lost her way. Thus, she goes on a trip to Europe. Annabelle was just a foil. But I had written her kind of over the top. She was a graphic designer, an artist. Rules were just suggestions to her. And I wrote in that she was twice divorced at 28. And then, of course, we finished the Paris book. And my publisher said, well, you know, what's your second? Because they had contracted me for two books. And I didn't really have an idea for the second. I mean, I had a bunch of ideas, but nothing that was really locking in. And then, you know, one day, and you know, as a writer, it's like I'm in the shower where I don't have a pen or a pencil. (laughs) And all of a sudden I thought, Annabelle, that's the next book. It's her story. And then I tapped into my own life where I grew up in Connecticut and moved to Arizona. 
And I thought, okay, okay, she's got to have a real figure her life out moment. So it starts off with an ex-husband proposing to her and she's a fixer. Her whole life is, you know, fixing the family after mom passed really young and fixing, you know, every man she gets involved with is kind of damaged and she fixes them. And then of course they outgrow her and move on. So I knew she was a fixer. She was smart enough to escape Boston. She gets to Phoenix, um, working for friends as a graphic designer, rents a house, you know, a nice little mother-in-law kind of house on a big estate and starts getting really like uh, curmudgeon letters from her landlord, who she assumes is an old geezer, judging by the letters and the fact that she's heard he's retired. And then of course she meets him and his name is Nick Dare. And He's recovering from a stroke and his family was blown apart by the opiate crisis. So he's got a lot to unbox and they kind of fit where she's a fixer and he's damaged, but she has to learn not to be a fixer and he has to learn to step up and deal with all of this stuff. So it was kind of, you know, getting two self-sabotaging people to see that they could have this amazing thing together, but they really had to, you know, fix their stuff to get there. I yeah. love that character arc that you're talking about because, of course, without tension, you, you really have no drama. Often people don't think that comedy is built on tension, but it certainly is. Jen McKinley, the new book is called Wait For It, and it's out. Jen, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Thank you so much, Tom. It was a real treat. You can find a bit more information about Jen McKinley and her work on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can? KJZZ is offering original podcasts like SunUp. It's clear from their observations that the contractors hired truly didn't know what they were doing. Years of historical items were buried in water and mud. Robbins urges students and employees to get tested weekly, regardless of their vaccination status. It's the morning news podcast from KJZZ News to start your day. Get it on iTunes or Spotify. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Eva Hamilton is the lead actress in a recently released film called Skinwalker. It's a horror western written and directed by Valley-based indie filmmaker Robert Conway, who's a returning guest on this podcast. The film was screened before live audiences this summer, but was actually shot in 2020 in isolation on a mountain in Arizona. I began my recent discussion with both by asking Eva how the reality of the pandemic informed her specific role in this hybrid film based on a Navajo legend. It was obviously happening during the pandemic, so that was a big factor in life and also in acting. And when we were filming it, we were all really kind of quarantined together, living in this cabin in the woods in the middle of nowhere. So there was an element of real life that, you know, I I was going through that with these people that I didn't really know prior to that. So you get to know people really well. It's just sort of a side effect. It's like all of us became quite close. You know, you see that in the characters and the interactions. So there was definitely that element. And then there's also the fact that in the film, 
there's a lot of people that are existing in their own space. It's like, I'm looking for my husband. There's a lot of people sort of like spread apart that are trying to get back to each other. And I think that, you know, there's an element of the pandemic sort of in that, in this isolation and in looking for connections. So I think you see it in the characters. And I think it also comes through in the acting and the directing and just kind of the whole experience because we were really living in the middle of that, obviously. Yeah. And speaking of your specific character, Maisie, what was it about the script when you were taking a look at it that made you want to play that character? And maybe could you briefly just describe her and her connection to the plot as well? Sure. Maisie is um, an outlaw's wife. Dalton is my husband and I'm part of this gang. The film starts out and I sort of am kidnapped by the marshal. They're trying to use me as bait basically to get my husband. I think it's a really interesting character and I was drawn to it because particularly in Westerns in the genre, you don't really see female characters portrayed that aren't, you know, like saloon girls or something of that nature. And I think Maisie, you get a lot more with her. She has in the sort of like tragic experience through the film and you really see who she is as a person and the humanity and there's this life behind her and also the fact that she's an outlaw. Robert, you have a great deal of experience with releasing films, of course, direct-to-video. I'm not saying that you haven't had runs on large screens with audiences, but what does it mean after a now 18-month pandemic to you that continues because we're not out of it to have this film that you made during this once-in-a-century global health crisis? What does that mean for you? Most of my films have been direct-to-video, so the only experience that I have with an audience is either at our screenings, our premieres, or at film festivals, which are just great experiences, you know. Movies are made for an audience. Uh, It's kind of like, in my mind, you know, it's like if a tree falls in the forest with no one around, did the tree even make a sound? Right. And, and, you know, it's still a thrill to see your work on the big screen. Because I didn't think this was going to be possible. I certainly, well, I hoped it would be, but I didn't plan on. Well, Eva, you have a deep connection to the Valley. You're living in L.A. now, right? I am, yeah. But I grew up in the Valley, actually. I lived there and, you know, went to high school and college and then moved here. So most of my life I was there. And has that played into your interest, I mean, just being out here in the West? You know, I always did like Westerns, I think, for that reason. I didn't know them super well, but I've always felt like a strong connection to the Old West. And I love ghost towns and stuff like that. So I think that was a part of it. But this is the first Western I've ever done. I mean, it was cool. It was cool. Cool. I was excited. Yeah, because a lot of people know you for your work in the horror genre and you perform many roles. And I'm always interested in why people, not just actors and actresses, but also patrons like that. And at what level? Because, of course, there's different subgenres, if you will. There's the really bloody, gory horror stuff. There's psychological horror, possession stories like The Exorcist, and, of course, like Skinwalker. What attracts you to the genre, and what level of horror are you comfortable performing? That's a great question. I have always loved horror. Like, I'm kind of a big horror nerd myself. So I I think there's something about it as a genre that really lets us look as a society and as people at some of the darker kind of grittier elements of the world and of existence. And I think that's kind of what draws me to it is looking at that in a really raw way in like a limited perspective, because you're looking at it in the microcosm of whatever these people are, whatever this experience is. And I think that's a really healthy kind of safe way to explore that and look at those aspects of ourselves. And hopefully, you know, as an audience or or, or as a filmmaker or actor, 
also take those elements and, you know, bring them into the world and hopefully let us learn a little bit more about who we are and some of these aspects of ourselves and the world that we maybe don't want to look at so much. Well, Robert, I know when we talked last year, you said you wanted to do a project last summer partly out of a sense of stir craziness, but also because you wanted to be productive amid a very low time. And the pandemic informed your screenwriting decisions for this film, Skinwalker, and the concept in the first place. Basically, what it was was the uh, invisible enemy. I based it kind of on John Carpenter's The Thing, where you didn't know who was infected. And that was very COVID-inspired. You know, it was like you didn't know if the guy next to you had this evil creature inside him or not. Because I had where the Skinwalker would travel from living host to living host, rather than outwardly assume different forms and, and shapeshift. It was more kind of a demonic possession more than a, a, a shapeshifting effect. And that was very COVID-inspired. I wanted to do a COVID-inspired movie that wasn't nail on the head about COVID because I still feel like people need a little bit of escapism, particularly when we're going through such a horrible thing as the COVID pandemic. But, you know, to make it uh, topical at the same time. And I think we've accomplished that. If you like John Carpenter's The Thing, if you like Westerns, you know, that's kind of, it's a hybrid of that. Well, Robert and Eva, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about Skinwalker. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. You can find out more about Skinwalker, Eva Hamilton, and Robert Conway at our website, word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening to this Season 6 opener. We'll be back later this month with another episode of Word. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.